Revelation chapter 3, we have advanced from chapter 2 into chapter 3, but we are still on the things that are now, the church age, the Lord addressing his church there, and we're on the fifth letter, the letter to Sardis, and I was going to say the letter to, and this is what you call people who live in Sardis, they're called sardines. (laughs) Now, that's why I didn't say it. I'm going to just can that joke right now. Because <laughs> that's sounding rather fishy to me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jay, for your inspiration. All right. Are you ready to pray even though we're laughing? All right. With holy joy, we go before the Lord. Now, Heavenly Father, we do. We do have joy in our hearts. We're We're going to live forever. We're going to heaven. We're escaping the wrath of God that we deserve and having eternal life and joy in a place where Jesus has gone on ahead to prepare for us. So how could we not be joy-filled today? So thank you, Father. And now as we open your, your wonderful word with great and precious promises, Holy Spirit, help us open the eyes of our heart that we may understand these wonderful truths Put them into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in graduate school many years ago, in fact, the kids were babies. In fact, that's where Zach is visiting, was born 23 years ago. Uh, I was in graduate school and attending a seminary there full-time. And I had several part-time jobs to help make ends meet uh, while I was in seminary. Now, one of those jobs there was working with an after-school recreation program at a school associated with the church on site. Uh, It was a Protestant denomination that was founded about 500 years ago. Not the church, obviously, (laughs) but the denomination. Now, one day, I was sharing the gospel with a coworker there. I became aware that he didn't know the Lord, and so I was telling him about Jesus and the good news. And I noticed that he was totally unfamiliar with the gospel. He didn't have a clue what I was talking about when I said about being born again. He was very open and very happy to hear the gospel and very receptive. The troubling part of this story is that he grew up in this particular church there. He went to the school. uh, He was in the youth groups growing up and now a member of the congregation. Worse still, the more I got to meet the staff and know the support crew from the actual church, those employed by the church and ministering at the church, it was apparent to me that something was very, very wrong. So I made an appointment with the senior pastor, and I said to him, what I have to tell you, I'm afraid, is every pastor's nightmare. There are several people that I work with here at this school who grew up in your church, who serve in your church, who are longtime members of your church. They sing in your choir. They teach in your classes. They're employed by the church. 
and yet they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and are unfamiliar with the saving gospel. And I said, how is that possible? That's why I'm here. Now, the more we talked, the more I listened to the pastor, sadly, I began to understand why people in his church didn't have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and did not understand the gospel. Now, for me, a church with a Christian name and a pastor and a staff that needs to be evangelized leaves me completely and utterly speechless. Now, a similar situation in a congregation in a city called Sardis, our Lord will observe here in the opening chapters of Revelation, it doesn't leave him speechless. In fact, we'll get to hear what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to a church with a lot of visible Christian activity in name, but void of spiritual life that comes from knowing Jesus Christ and obeying and living and trusting the gospel. Now, before we dive in, we're going to need some context, especially if you're just joining us without the benefit of the last few Sundays. The Lord here in the book of Revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, means to unveil. He's unveiling to seven churches, seven local congregations, advanced history, how the world as we know it will come to a screeching halt under a horrendous cataclysmic judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. Now, the very first people to hear this message of the prophecy of Revelation belong to seven congregations in what is now called modern-day Turkey. And so we've seen this every week. The island of Patmos Where is it? There it is. <laughs> we may have an iPad up here, but it doesn't mean that I'm totally up to speed, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Island of Patmos, where the, where the revelation is happening, this letter goes first to Ephesus, and then it's going to make the circuit. We've already talked to the church at Ephesus, or about, rather, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Now we're at Sardis. This whole area is modern-day Turkey. It's where from Jerusalem the gospel came up through the Apostle Paul. Three times in the book of Acts, the gospel was planted in. This is called Asia. This is Europe and Greece. The gospel seed came up. And, of course, we have the letter to Ephesus in our Bible. We've heard of Laodicea in the New Testament, but we don't have a church to them, a letter to the church, I should say. The rest of these were started by the seeds of the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And so that is the context. The original hearers are motivated by this advanced uh, revelation to encourage a persecuted church to endure faithfully in light of the glories to come. And now we mentioned before that the seven out of hundreds of churches that existed, the Lord calls them the seven because they are a complete, number seven, perfect picture 
of the strengths and the weaknesses and the issues that all churches that ever exist from the day of Pentecost until the Lord's coming for his people, at something we call the rapture, the second coming for the church, uh, that he can speak a word to these seven and we will find ourselves in them as we obey and as we repent. We are drifting in and out of this sevenfold description. And now we're following an outline uh, given by the Lord in the book itself. And uh, it's very easy to follow. Chapter 1 was a vision of Jesus Christ which told everybody, hey, this book isn't about the Antichrist. It's not about the beast. And whoever doesn't take the mark of 666 is going to be executed, which is true. It's not about Armageddon. It's about the king of glory. It's about the author of life. And then we see a picture. I mean, you can look at it. All pictures fall short. Uh, but let me show you a picture of uh, Revelation 1, what John saw and wrote about in chapter 1 was the Lord of glory. And the candlesticks were the churches on the earth. And he is seen as the high priest and the sovereign Lord of those churches, and we shining the light of the gospel, and, and his eyes blazing with fire, and his, from his mouth a two-edged sword, uh, his will, and, and it's, it, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And back to the outline, the Lord tells John in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, now I want you to write down what you just saw, Revelation 1, and then I want you to write what the things that are now, the churches in chapter 2 and 3. So first he wants, a, the Lord of the church wants a word with his people because it really doesn't help us to know how the world ends if we're not walking right with him in right relationship with him. So first, those seven local congregations will be addressed one at a time in a little paragraph to each one before the Lord totally reveals what comes after the church. And that means the church is taken away in what we call the rapture. And then chapters 4 through 22 happen. Chapters 6 through 19 are what is what somebody just told me, the juicy part of Revelation <laughs> The cataclysmic destruction starts in 6 and goes all the way until 19. And so uh, those are the things that come after. He's very clear about that. Twice he will say, when the, when the church is finished, after it's over, then the world leader will arise. He is called the beast. And then most of Revelation describes the Lord's judgment against him and his forces as he tries to wipe out all those who refuse to take his mark. The Lord will overpower him, return in glory with the hosts of heaven, and establish his eternal kingdom. And so to the business at hand then would be chapters now, chapter 3 and verse 1 with what is here and now the fifth letter to the congregation of the city of Sardis. Reading at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we pause there. We just take one letter at a time because, as you can see, there's quite enough to deal with. Uh, Now, these seven letters have been following a pretty easy pattern, easy for us, in that it always starts with a greeting. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the Lord describes himself in a way that is most appropriate for the church's greatest need. And so how he describes himself is the answer to their very problem. And so we'll see more of that as we get into the letter. After the greeting always comes the commendation. There'll be none here, you know, because, you know, dead people have a hard time of accomplishing things. Apparently, there is no commendation for them. Uh, Corrections comes next, what they're doing wrong and how to fix it. And then always the Lord ends on a positive note, and and it's his commitment to them. Uh, motivation for putting his word into action. So we're going to take a look at this kind of rather mysterious greeting here in verse 1. Now, not if you've joined us before, we've already found out the meaning of the symbol of the seven spirits before the throne of God and the seven angels. He says, greeting right away. I want you to know something right off the top. I am the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven angels in my hand. Now, the word for spirit there, and we talked about this before, is pneuma. It's not plural. The only reason our word puts an S on spirits is when there's a many or a number before it. So literally, it says the seven breath, the seven spirit. The sevenfold spirit would be a good way. Now, seven means full and complete and perfect. And so what he's saying there is is it's the fullness of the Holy Spirit of the living God. That is what really seven spirits means. And the seven angels, uh, are. he's saying, I hold the, the power over all spiritual realms. So as one commentator put it, he said, he opens by saying, And seeing, here we see God the Son as the visible Lord, reigning with full authority and power of his Holy Spirit, the one who's fully in charge of all things spiritual. So in essence, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the ruler and sustainer of all life. Everything that exists owes its its existence to me. Now, why does he greet them with the emphasis of God, the Holy Spirit, to this particular church. Well, you remember, he's thinking about their greatest need because they're dead. 
spiritually speaking. They're void of life. It's sort of night of the living dead all over again at that church. They are spiritual zombies. They would disagree with me. They would say, hey, listen, we're doing a lot of stuff. We got a school with a waiting list a mile long. We got a choir. We have social programs. We pray. We have liturgies. But the Lord and the Lord's opinion alone is the only opinion of who we are that matters. He says, you have a reputation. People say this and that, and they probably take comfort in, in how they're thought of and spoken of. But it really doesn't matter what people say or think about you or me. It matters what the all-seeing, blazing eyes of the Lord God, who knows all and is in all and gives life to every living thing, what his opinion is, is what matters most. So here's what he's saying. He's saying... Dear church at Sardis, I can make alive. I can raise the dead. I've got the spiritual power. I am the spirit that gives life to all. And you're dead. Now, to make the connection is really easy. I'm the spirit of all life-giving power. And dear Sardis, you really need me. You need the maker aliver because you've got a problem. That's not in the Greek there, but you know. There's no breath in the Hebrew. The word for spirit is ruach, and there's a little in there. Ruach, all right? And in the Greek, it's pneuma, as I mentioned. He's the one in Ezekiel 37 who looks at the dead bones. And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, well, you know, Lord. And he says, let me breathe on them. And he breathes Ruach, spirit, pneuma, life of God. And those things come to life. Job 33 and verse 4. The spirit of God has made me. The breath of Almighty gives me life. Isaiah 42 and verse 5. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Acts 17, 25. God himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Now, that helps us understand what the Lord tells Nicodemus, a very religious, church-going kind of guy, that he says, where it says here, flesh counts for nothing, it means you'll never get to heaven by just being a human being. Human beings can never get to heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's a fancy way of saying if you're just born once and you're a good human being, you have a zero chance of escaping hell and making it to eternal life. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless the breath comes into you, unless you are born from above, unless there is a spiritual transformation in your heart, unless you repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have his pneuma 
come into your heart and raise you from the dead and join you to his spirit, you cannot be saved. On June 3rd, 1979, a 19-year-old crazy teenager in unbelief walked in a bar with his brother, and I've told you many times, the gospel had been presented to me. It was ringing in my head. The Holy Spirit convicted me inside that bar, and I responded. I stopped. I stopped what I was doing. I walked outside. I bowed my head, and I prayed, and something came into me and made me alive. I was dead before, and now I was alive. Now, happily, we'd be at the commendation part, what they're doing right in the letter, but there's nothing to say because they're not able to do anything because they're not spiritually alive. And so Jesus goes straight to the correction, and uh, here's what he has to say. Here's a paraphrase. I know your deeds. I see the activities. You've got a great reputation for doing a lot of stuff. You're known in the community as an active church, but actually, in my opinion, you are D-E-A, dead. Whoops. <laughs> I got excited. I skipped the D. <laughs> you get it. You're dead. All right? That's what he says. Now, interestingly, this is an expression we use. Let's talk about this dead thing, all right? Because we go to a church, or we've been to a church or an institution, uh, and we'll, we can describe it as dead. We know what that means. It means that it's kind of dry in there. The fellowship is a little sparse and a little awkward, and the preaching boring and non-relevant and not gospel and not from the Bible. And so we would, we would say, hey, man, that church is dead or boring or whatever. Now, I, I heard about this little boy who was terribly bored in one of those kind of churches. He said, Dad, the sermon's always the same and the music, the same hymns every single week. And he says, I don't think I could live through this any longer. Dad, I am so bored. And he said this a lot. One day, dad and boy are leaving the church, and he sees a gold plaque on the back of the wall. He says, Dad, what's that about? And he said, oh, that's a plaque that honors those who have died in the service. <laughs> and he said, Dad, I told you. <laughs> They're going to put my name on there soon. Now, it's one thing for us to walk into a church and have the assessment, look around and feel and check it out and just say, man, that was kind of dead. It's another thing when the Lord of the church goes to that church and is bored to tears. That's not a good sign. Now, the Lord's assessment, let's talk about the word dead. In, in the Greek, the word dead means dead. The word in Greek is nekros, from the word corpse. Now, physically, I don't think you need much uh, of a definition. Deceased, departed, without life. Uh, in John 11, uh, they're thinking Lazarus is sleeping, he's sick, and the Lord just looks at him and says, uh, I tell you plainly, La Lazarus is nekros. 
He's dead. Now, metaphorically or figuratively, the word also can mean unregenerated. No ruach, no numa, no nothing. Just a human being. Maybe a nice one, a good one, a religious one, a hymn-singing one, but no ruach has gotten in there. No numa. All right? That person, by God's definition, has not come to life and is considered necros. As for you, Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 1, as for you, you were necros in your sins. You were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about figuratively um, living, breathing human beings who through unbelief and sin is estranged from God. Now, you know that I've mentioned this before that uh, I like this show, The Shark Tank. And uh, there's a really obnoxious character, uh, Kevin O'Leary, who's just all about the money. And he often says when they turn his negotiation down, he says, turn around and you're dead to me. Now, what he's saying is there's no relationship. There, there'll be no talking. There'll be, there's nothing you can do. Once, once that's over, it's over. I don't have a relationship with you. This is the sense of the word, necros, spiritually speaking, to this church, that there's no relationship with God. There's a lot of activity, but the heart has not been made alive by the spirit of the living God. So regular human, regular old human beings, just there in the Sardis assembly, churchgoers, you know what the word nominal Christian means? The word nominal means in name only. That means they claim to be, they may act like one, but in the heart, they are not regenerated. Now, to the corrections, what can this church do? So without wasting any time, the Lord says, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. Now, paraphrased. Wake up, fan into flame that tiny flickering flame that's about to go out because your Christian service is not complete. Well, very good news, I think, because as Chuck Swindoll wrote, What begins as a deathbed scene, however, now suddenly shifts to an emergency room drama. You see, now, the good news is there's a flicker of light. They're not really dead dead. They're mostly dead. (laughs) Now, (laughs) to quote Miracle Max with dead Wesley in his arms, His friends are saying, what are you talking to him? He's dead. And they go, oh, you know so much. No. You know, it just so happens that your friend here is mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all the way dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, this church is slightly alive because the Lord says so. Listen. Listen up. Now, I I like the phrase, very instructive. He says, I have found that your deeds are are missing something. He says, they're lacking right there. He says, they're lacking in God's sight. What are they lacking? Spirit, life, ruach, 
God. Saving faith. They're just empty. Well, how could that be? Come on, we've got the four Gospels showing us the Pharisees in every other chapter doing lots of deeds that are lacking life. In fact, the Lord says, the Pharisees tithed down to their seeds in their gardens. That's a deed. It's lacking, but it's a deed. They did uh, alms to the poor. They gave to the poor. They supported the gospel mission. The Pharisees had a missionary program. The Pharisees studied the Bible. The Pharisees knew the Bible. The Pharisees prayed three times a day. And here comes the similar rebuke. Listen, here's what the Lord says. You guys, Matthew chapter 23, and I think it's verse 27, says you guys are like very decorated coffins, attractive on the inside, but inside, uh, attractive on the outside rather, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all kinds of nastiness. Something's missing. What was missing to, from the Pharisees' good works? The heart was untouched. And a good deed without love for God, a good deed without the blood of Jesus through faith, atoning over that good deed is not a very good deed and doesn't count for anything. Religious good deeds without the love of the Lord is like a car without an engine. It's, with, it's like a bird without wings. It's like in and out without a double-double. <laughs> what do you think? Amen? Come on. You guys need to loosen up a little bit. I know it's serious, but you know what? Here we are. So Jesus says, wake up. Now, how would you wake up? Well... Romans 12 and verse 11 says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. So I think the few Christians, and there were a few genuine Christians there in the assembly, were hearing, you know what, I've got to get my act together. You know, the Lord understands you're surrounded in a sea of, of barrenness in that place. You're not getting the word from the platform. The worship is horrifying. There are, two, there are so many non-Christians who are employed by the church. Worship leaders don't know the Lord. Just hired because they're good musicians. But if you need spiritual help and you go up to one of them after the service and say, thank you for that, it really touched my heart, they themselves need to be saved. When he's talking to the Christian, the Christian needs to fan into flame. But listen closely. They're not about to die. Their church is about to die. A church, he's speaking to a church. Churches can die. They lose their witness, their purpose. They become ineffective. They disband. They die. But, as one writer said, the life and spirit of a born-again Christian can never die. It was born of the eternal God. It has been joined to the eternal spirit, 
with an eternal destiny guaranteed by Jesus Christ himself. A Christian may lose their zeal and their testimony, their effectiveness and reward, but they can never lose through behavior what was never attained through effort. Amen? What did Jesus tell Martha? He said, whoever believes in me will never die. Whoever believes in me will never die. He certainly does not mean physically, does he? He cannot mean physically. He is speaking spiritually. Whoever puts their faith in me, I'm quoting God the Son now, whoever puts their faith in me will never die. Therefore, Jesus is not telling the born-again Christians in that congregation, you're about to die or lose the life that God put in them because it's impossible. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you all better get, get it together or this church is going to be completely dead. Now, to the unregenerated, unsaved, unbelievable unbelieving nominal Christians there, he says in verse 3, remember what you've received and heard and obey and repent. He's saying, you guys need to get saved. You've got the gospel there. You know the gospel. Come to the altar. Raise your hand after service. Respond. Do something. Surrender your heart. He's really just saying to the unregenerated, get saved. Wake up. Wake up. O sleeper, and Christ will shine upon you. Interesting what Jesus says to the church. He says, hey, to the nominal Christians, they're not saved. They're playing church. To these churchgoers, he goes, listen, church, very interesting. He says, if you don't wake up, here's what's waiting for you. I will come like a thief in the night, and you won't be ready, and you will not know when I come for you. Now, what is he saying here? It's a great allusion to Matthew 24 when he talks about his appearing for the church with surprise. And he says in Matthew 24, he says, my coming for the church will be like a thief in the night. It'll be surprise. He says, it'll be like the days of Noah. Every day, you know, they're sending out wedding invitations. They're having garden parties. They're going to work. Business as usual. Until the day they went into the ark, the door shut. And then the flood came and swept them all away. He's saying, do you want to be left here behind? He's saying there will be two in a pew. One will go and one will stay. You will all be there on Sunday asking each other, what happened? Where did so-and-so go? Where did that person go? The pastor will be there probably to explain it to them, (laughs) unfortunately. Could be, you know, hopefully not, we pray. But there are pastors who are in the pulpit who do not know the Lord. They teach a false gospel. They need to be evangelized. That's just the truth. That's not judging anybody. It's evaluating the lifestyle and the words that are coming out of their mouth as the Lord Jesus Christ taught us to do. Amen? I needed that. One more time. I feel so much better. All right, now listen. He says, do you want to be surprised? You're not going to know when I show up. Well, to one degree or another, everybody in this room is going to be surprised. 
if it would have happened five minutes ago, everybody in this room would have been very, very surprised. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. All right. Very, very happy. Pleasantly surprised. But you were expecting it. There's a difference between the person who is surprised and dismayed and suffers loss by the thief and the person who is surprised pleasantly and has been expecting it all along. It was just a question of when. That's a big difference. We expect it. We believe it. We're desiring it. We're longing for it. We're waiting for it. We're living in light of it. We are making our daily decisions and our agendas and our goals and what we say and what we don't say and how we invest and how we don't invest. All in light of one thing. God's grace in our lives teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus chapter 2. That's all we're about. We're waiting. It's in the back of our minds. We know that at any second he could appear. And we're living that. There's a big difference between being pleasantly surprised because we didn't know it was going to happen five seconds ago or in five more seconds than the person who looks around and is surprised and shocked and devastated and left behind. Two in a pew. One will go. One will stay. Two men on a platform in a church. One will go and one will stay. That is a spiritual reality that we find in the Bible. Now, the encouraging close, the Lord's commitment to his overcomers, a little bit of what God has prepared for those who love him. And now let me paraphrase verses 4 through 6. Encouraging. He says, now, even in such a dead church like Sardis, there are a few of you who have held out and not compromised. They haven't let themselves be defiled, and they will walk with me one day dressed in white. They've made themselves, they have become worthy. I will never erase their name from the book of life, but will tell their story and introduce them before God the Father and before all the angels of heaven. Now, if you have ears, please listen to what the Spirit is saying. So here, wrapping up, there's an affirmation for the few non-compromisers in the group. There are three promises for them and for all genuine Christians. So listen up if you consider yourself one. These promises are for you. Number one, a promise of being made permanently, eternally clean. Two, a promise of being made secure. Three, a promise of being well-received in heaven. So, let's finish up here. The Lord has a special love for the remnant, always. Now, who are the remnant? By definition, remnant means a few holdouts, some sole survivors, a small part who, in spite of being outnumbered, remain loyal. And the Lord himself said, this is the lot of all of us in this world. He says, you need to enter through the narrow gate because narrow is the way that leads to life. And few, considering all of the world, few there be that find it. And so he's saying... 
He's saying narrow is the way and that you'll always be part of the few and not part of the many. And he says, I see you. You are the few holdouts. Maybe you're the only Christian in your class. Maybe you're the only believer in the office. Maybe you're the only one in your family. Maybe you're the only young man who hasn't lost his virginity but is waiting until marriage like New York Jets quarterback Tim Tebow. Tebow. The, the only one, perhaps, that doesn't go out and smoke weed behind the school or get drunk at the parties. Maybe you're the only one, the Lord says. I see you. He says, even though the whole church is full of unbelieving nominal Christians, there you are, right there. I see you. I see you. Thank you. Way to go. Promise number one. He says, you're walking in white now. You're striving to be pure now. Way to go because that's the future. Everybody in heaven wears white. Everybody there is pure, completely fulfilled all the way, holy and pure, clean, shiny, bright, holy and pure. Your lone ranger days are coming to an end. You in heaven will join everybody in white. And, and what will they be wearing when they stand before the great white throne? They will not be wearing white. We are covered. We will not be ashamed. We will be glowing with a holiness that he imparts to us. But not them. The tables would be turned and he says, thank you for being the few and far between who are trying to not be defiled by this world where you're going. That's all there is. You're going to fit right in. And then who's going to be there? It says a number that man can never count. And then it's us in white. The very way we try to live our lives in this life he says, way to go, because that's your future. And it, you won't be outnumbered in the place that you're going. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, white, pure, undefiled, worthy. Now, how did we ever get called worthy? Well, Revelation tells us there's never any question how those robes got so white. Here's the verse. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of God the Son is this magic red dye that bleaches everything it comes into contact with, a brilliant, holy, pure White. Promise number two, he says, and I believe it's the most comforting promise in the Bible. He says in verse five, I'll never erase their names from the book of life. Now, in ancient times in Sardis, when a citizen died, their names were blotted out of the city register called the book of the living or the book of life. And so when Christians, the real ones, 
were hauled off and martyred and put to death. They would be killed, and then they would happily blot their name out of the book of life. And the Lord says, by the way, I've got a book with a similar name, and your name's in it, and it's impossible for it to ever be blotted out. I do not have, the Lord is saying, I do not own any whiteout at all. <laughs> You're not getting blotted out. It's a promise of assurance, not a menacing threat. How sad, and I have a quote here, how sad that some would turn this most beautiful, gracious promise into a menacing threat. The New Testament in dozens of places assures the believer that nothing can separate him from God's love. Once our name is in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus says it remains forever. Now, the book of life is mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, Revelation 13, 17, 20, 21, and 22, if you're interested in looking at that. Apparently... When a person trusts in the Lord and the Spirit comes into them and they are genuinely uh, regenerated and have life, their name goes in a book in heaven, sometimes called the Lamb or Jesus' book of life. And Jesus just saying, listen, you can be martyred, you could die a terrible tragedy here, but nothing, never, I will never, Take that name out. Once the name goes in the book, it's done. That's the way it works. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, the Lord uses a lot of verbs to describe us in one sentence. And here's what he says. He says that the Lord foreknew us. That means that God chose us, God chose us in eternity past. He selected us. The word elect means to take from a group. He took from a group you. If you're a born-again Christian, he knew you before the world was. That's number one in one sentence. Number two, he predestined us. That means he guarantees your safe arrival to heaven. To be predestined means you're going there by his power. Number three, he called us. That means he supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit, wooed you into his kingdom and brought you into life. Number four, he justified us. It means to be acquitted of all wrongdoing, granted a full pardon. And then in the same breath, it says, and God glorified us. Past tense. It means to be perfected in heavenly glory, past tense. So, salvation for the Christian is not progressive. It cannot be interrupted. It is a one-time happening. Your name goes in the book. The Spirit goes into you. The angels rejoice, and you are, in one sentence, have been foreknown by God, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, E.D., past tense, done, the same day that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were, Ephesians chapter 2, seated in heavenly places from God's point of view 
It's already done. You are now walking it out. That is the promise to overcomers. Now, somebody might argue, the promise right there, Pastor Ross, is for those who overcome. I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to read who those might be. All right? Let's read it together. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Let's just stop there and think about that. That means that every single born-again Christian overcomes. You are God's overcomer, period. End of sentence. That's what it says. All right? Now, let's start from the beginning. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, let's stop there. Even your hard work. Oh, you better hang on. You better overcome. You better say no to that devil. Or, you know what? You better say no to that devil. However, that is not why you are an overcomer. You are an overcomer because you trust in God, and that is the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit comes in and walks this thing out in us. Yes, we cooperate. Yes, you can destroy your Christian life and your testimony and be ineffective and unproductive and lose your reward. But you cannot be removed from the registry in heaven because you didn't get there by earning it. You got there by trusting. Well, what if I untrust? It's too late. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, please. Why are you working against yourself anyway? You're trying so hard, and he's trying so hard. Who's going to win? He's going to win. So just enjoy your Christian life, amen? Amen. All right, let's start all over again. (laughs) For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. This is what happens for you. He says, clothed in white. And then he's going to say something that ought to shock the daylights out of every one of us. I think it's the most overlooked blessing in the book. Ready for this one? It doesn't say much in English. But when you start digging, it's a wow. All right? He says, I'm going to acknowledge him before God the Father and before all the angels, before heaven. All right? And here's what that word acknowledge means. In the Greek, it's examalogeo. Now, you're not going to know that tomorrow, are you? (laughs) Here's what I hope you remember. Here's what the word means. It means to joyfully celebrate, to give honor and praise, to thank and to appreciate. He's going to introduce you and me and tell our story before God the Father and all of the angels above. Now, apparently he's pretty proud of his children and what they've had to go through and put up with in this life. He appreciates how they cooperated in their exploits in this life. So here's how I imagine this scene. Heaven gets quiet. There's a gathering. Heaven's dignitaries. Oh, everybody will be there. Everybody who ever existed, who is saved, will be in this meeting. That would include also 
Noah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Elisha, Elijah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all going to be listening to this. Angels, the seraphim, the cherubim, the creatures before the throne of God, the 24 elders, there's crowns and scepters and queens and kings and rulers. Paul the apostle will be there. Peter, James, and John, the disciples, Timothy and Titus, all gathered around and picture he, the Son of God, takes your hand as according to this promise and walks you to the front and center and says, and he clears his throat or however the Lord's going to get his attention. <laughs> and all of heaven hushes because the Lord wants to say something. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, angels and cherubim and whatever they are, <laughs> I like to acknowledge and praise and applaud. This is my son. I want to tell you the story. I want to tell you because... The story wasn't told down there. This is how I found him or her. This is what we did together. These, these are the kinds of odds that were coming against this person, John. Let's call him John. Sorry, we always go for John. <laughs> Nobody knew the struggles and the trials. Let me tell you now, Father, in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and every soul that ever existed... He says, let me tell you and introduce and acknowledge and give praise to this person. What do you want him to say? What do you want the Apostle Paul who will be listening and all your fam family who's saved? You're living that today. You're helping to write the words of that speech Today, this afternoon, tomorrow morning. How do you want the story to go? Well, I haven't done really much thus far. Today, tonight. And you'd be surprised how much the Lord has done in you and through you. How do you want that to go? That's going to be beautiful. He's going to talk about your faith, your accomplishments in him, your faithfulness. And you're going to be eternally clean, eternally safe, and eternally well-received. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the honor and privileges. We can't even grasp half of this idea that you before all of heaven will acknowledge us. But we know it to be true. And we wouldn't put it past you because of your great love, especially in light of the cross. God the Son, bleeding and agonizing in our place. That does help us to believe that you really love us and have great things in store for those who love you back. So help us, Lord, to help you write the story of our lives even today. In, in good terms, that we would just be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.